Thank you for having me. <laughs> and thank you for coming, even though it's really rainy. Um, today, I'm going to talk about Junior. Now, we're going to start with Romans 16, 7. Greed Adronicus and Junior, wrote Paul in his famous letter to the Romans, my fellow Jews who have been imprisoned with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Now, I've just started reading Mark and Luke Glanville's book, Refuge Reimagined, and the book opens with God's emphasis throughout Scripture on the Christian ethic of extending kinship to those without clan, without family, and without home. And now here in 16, Romans 16, 7, Paul is actually entreating the Christians in Rome to embrace both Adronicus and Junia, along with the others listed from verse 1 to 16, as kin. And he's not dropping a casual, by the way, tell A and J, Paul said hi, kind of thing. Like he's basically giving a careful and um, he's careful to connect and compare Adronicus and Junia to himself favorably. This is a personal referral. And Paul is listing their street cred. This is Paul saying, I trust them. They're our people. Please greet them like one of your own. So first, he calls them his fellow Jews, which is like saying, these are my people, my rallies. He refers to them both as his fellow prisoners. So now they're fellow sufferers for the same cause. Then Paul sings their praises. They are both outstanding among the apostles. Not only that, they've been in Christ longer than he has. Adronicus, Andronicus and Junior are veterans of the faith compared to Apostle Paul. So if the Christians in Rome love and accept Paul, what more these two fellow apostles? Now, Junior is a woman. I'm going to pause here and acknowledge that women apostles probably aren't an earth-shattering revelation to you lot, but that's because you already believe and understand that serving one another, how we serve one another, the gifts we use to serve one another, isn't contingent on the genitalia we were born with. However, over the course of two millennia, as Christians continue to shape and be shaped by the world they live in, junior being a lady apostle, started to become problematic. The discomfiture wasn't immediate. Origen, a third century early church father, referred to Junior repeatedly as both a woman and an apostle. This despite frowning on sex even in marriage and declaring that women were worse than animals because they were always so lusty. Suffice to say, Origen didn't think very highly of women at all, so Junior must have been pretty outstanding in Origen's books because he even went as far as to suggest that Junior was one of the 72 commissioned by Christ in the book of Luke chapter 10, verse 1 to 4. And just in case you were wondering what that one was about, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. 
Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals and do not greet anyone on the road. So basically, hastily, go, go. These are 72 possibly like evangelists. They're heralding the coming of the Lord. Then the eloquent John Chrysostom, born a little later in the 4th century, was also a native speaker of Greek. Like Origen, he couldn't be described as egalitarian, although he did speak out against the sexual misconduct of the married men in his world and encouraged them not to ditch their wives for the new skirt. Still, he saw women as weak and fickle, actual words, and although he thought women of the Bible were great in character, he was still of the opinion that women, and this is an actual quote, in no case outstripped the men, but occupied the second rank. In other words, Chrysostom was still a man of his time, and yet he had this to say of Junior in his homily 31 on Paul's letter to the Romans. He said, And indeed, to be an apostle at all is a great thing, but to be even among these of note, just consider what a great tribute this is. But they were of note owing to their works, to their achievements. Oh, how great is the wisdom of this woman! that she should be even counted worthy of the appellation of apostle. Junior, a woman apostle, even by John Chrysostom's reckoning. But a funny thing happened by the time we reached the very end of the 13th century. The year is 1298. It's the time of Pope Boniface VIII's the one whose shenanigans in and out of bed were so bad that Dante, of Dante Inferno's fame, placed him in the eighth circle of hell, along with brokers who trade positions of power in the church. So this is a picture of um, Dante himself talking to a pair of feet. It's actually Pope Nicholas III. He was buried head first, so it's hard to see. He mistakes Dante for Pope Boniface um, VIII and confesses his sin to Dante. Boniface was all about consolidating and expanding his power, even announcing in the papal bull that the Pope was superior to the Emperor as the latter governs only in the secular realm. So Boniface, he's kind of dodgy. Boniface was also rabidly opposed to women in any position of power, secular or spiritual, even if he was quite happy to bend them two at a time. So the churchman he used to wield scripture as his own gavel is a scholastic theologian and friar by the name of Giles. Giles of Rome. In 1298, Giles of Rome, working with Latin texts and not the Greek, named Andronicus's partner Julian and proceeded to call them both worthy men, thus performing the first sex change operation on the Bible. Now, when Jeff asked me two Fridays ago, I was with Erica at the time, what my message today was about. I told him that the working title was the one about the sex change. And there was this horrified silence for a moment before Jeff tactfully replied with, the what? <laughs> Thankfully, the scholars of Giles Day didn't seem to buy it. And Julia continued as a woman until 1852 when English theologian Henry Elford wrote a Greek New Testament and gave Junior's name a masculine ending by tacking on an S at the end. So Junior became Junias. 
While Alfred at least had a grace to note in the margins that the name could be either feminine or masculine, further translations made no such caveats or allowances. The English revised version of 1881, for example, used Junias unabashedly, and there was a small fluctuation between feminine and masculine versions of the name among other translations until Nestle's 1927 version. From there, Junior was noted as a male apostle until about 1970, where it started to zigzag between masculine and feminine versions as more translators did their homework. Here's an interesting tabulation of, obviously we can't get every single translation in there, but you can see King James versions on the top. And prior to that, every mention of Junior was in the feminine. And then it started to go towards masculine and then it ducked back into feminine and then it was masculine throughout. The NIV version even, the 1984 version that a lot of us grew up with, put Junias as well and they didn't revise it until 2011. So that's basically, yeah, the history of that one. Now, why the change? Why did the people in the early 1900s change it to Junias? Perhaps the view of this late 19th century scholar might shine a light on the attitudes of the day. It seems probable, Bishop Joseph Barber Lightfoot wrote, that we should render the name as Junias, not Junia. I mean, this is a change that's happened after over 400 years of Junia being universally acknowledged as female, Giles' creative copy editing notwithstanding. But in Lightfoot's patriarchal context, the two persons in Romans 16.7 were outstanding among the apostles. And so they must both be men. For how could a woman possibly be an apostle and an outstanding one at that? Here's the crazy thing. There is no such name as Junias. As scholars pore over ancient names, what is clear is that Junia is a common name and Julia is a very, very common name, but there is no record of any other Junias in antiquity. In fact, Greek names don't really work like that. Tacking on an S at the end of a Greek chick's name doesn't make the name any more masculine than tacking on an S at the, name of, at the end of Megan or Heather or Ariella. Here's the not so crazy thing that you already know. Christendom has been twisting itself into weird knots over women for centuries. And this isn't the first time that Bible translators decided to help the text along to their own conclusions. Consider these changes over the centuries. This is Genesis 3.16. And the Hebrew word is teshuka, and I'm probably not doing the pronunciation justice, but you know, I'm a Chinese, so <laughs> those are the breaks. Original Hebrew was then translated into the Greek in the Septuagint. And the word Tashuka is translated as you are turning to your husband and he will rule over you. Now the Vulgate in the late 4th century was a Latin translated, uh, translation by Jerome and he's notoriously not pro-women. And he translated the word to you shall be under the power of your husband and he will rule over you. Then the Geneva Bible in the sixth and and the Latin Vulgate, by the way, was the authoritative um, translation for about a thousand years. Now the Geneva Bible in the sixteenth century: "In sorrow shalt thou bring forth children, and thy desire shall be subject to thy husband." So they basically added the word desire in there because they really had a thing about lust, and he shall rule over thee. 
Now, the English Standard Version is an interesting one. In 2015, they had your desire, so continuing from the Geneva Bible, shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. But in 2016, they changed it to your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Interestingly, this last change by the ESV's translation panel was part of a suite of 52 changes they made to 29 verses in August of 2016. I mean, this is recent history. What made these changes scandalous was how Crossway, the publisher, then released a statement explaining that the ESV was now unchangeable. That's it. We made all the changes we ever want to make and we're done. We, we know everything there is to know about translation, and that's it, you know, finish. What made these unchangeable changes especially sus is the fact that the translation panel of the ESV is patriarchal in its ethos. The oversight committee, the review committee, and translation contributors are all men. And apparently one of them is a Presbyterian reverend from Geelong. So there you go. The most famous member of the oversight committee is Wayne Grudem a highly influential Southern Baptist theologian who literally wrote the book on systematic theology. In 1987, he founded the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. On that council's website, they explain how the ESV Literal Study Bible is, in their own words, unapologetically complementarian. We'll circle back to Wayne Grudem in a second. I want to talk a bit more about Genesis. In a second. When patriarchy first started seeping into the church and women's voices steadily diminished, the biblical justification for such inequality was rooted in Genesis and 1 Corinthians. John Chrysostom in one of his homilies said, The woman, Eve, taught once and ruined all. On this account, therefore, he saith, Let her not teach. But what is it to other women that she suffered this? It certainly concerns them, for the sex is weak and fickle, and he is speaking of the sex collectively. There's a homily on First Timothy. And in mulling over head coverings for women, John Calvin concluded, On this account, all women are born that they may acknowledge themselves inferior in consequence of the superiority of the male sex. For long, long centuries, and it probably felt longer for women, the man-woman relationship was understood like this. God had made man superior and women inferior. Adam was the glory of God, but Eve was created after Adam and for Adam, and she was therefore second and secondary. Eve sinned first in the garden and then gave Adam the forbidden fruit. So women are not only more gullible and susceptible to sin, but they are also deceivers. It was also believed that because of Eve's sin, women were cursed with subjugation. While it's tempting to dismiss such thinkers as misogynistic, we have to remember that their understanding of dualism and human biology was based on Plato and Aristotle. Aristotle's biology gave, as one theologian put it, a scientific expression to the basic patriarchal assumption that the male is the normative and representative expression of the human species, and the female is not only secondary and auxiliary to the male, but lacks full human status in physical strength, moral self-control, and mental capacity. Interestingly, how they also talked about slaves. 
later on. In fact, the idea that the male is normative has far-reaching consequences to how we talk about God and how we talk to God. In reminding ourselves that God is personal and knowable, and knowable, yeah, we balk from referring to God as the genderless it. And we like to call God Father. We say Him and He. Jesus called God Father. There is nothing wrong with that. But we do well to remember that Father is a beautiful descriptor of a close familial relationship and that God ultimately encapsulates and transcends gender. God created humanity in God's own image. In the divine image, God created them. Male and female, God created them. Mary Wollstonecraft, mother of Mary Shelley, the author of Frankenstein, is widely regarded as the mother of feminism as she argued for women's rights on the basis that all human beings are capable of reason and not just men. But what is less known in feminism circles is this. Wollstonecraft argued that women are capable of reason because we are made in the image of God. In fact, she went as far as to reject the normative masculine standards for what passes as rational and instead radically redefines reason as moral and spiritual effort, a search for truth, fueled by emotional and passionate conflict and instilled in humanity by the Creator. Furthermore, she renders evident the illogic of limiting, of limiting this God-given capacity of reason to one half of the human race. In other words, what makes us human and equals is our shared ability to search for truth and meaning. It is why Adam, after hanging out with all the animals and naming them, was still lonely until God split Adam, humanity, in two and created Eve. It is why the moment Adam, now man, laid eyes on Eve that he recognized her as bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. He say, we are of the same kind. You are just like me. By the 1970s, even the church was finally starting to understand that women were not a subspecies of men. Nor should we be treated as such. As prominent evangelical church leaders started teaching the equality of the sexes, George Knight III, a conservative reformed theologian, stepped in with a brand new take. In his 1977 book, New Testament Teaching on the Role Relationship of Men and Women, he rejected the customary language of superior and inferior, arguing instead that men and women are equal but different because God had assigned to each sex different roles. Now, the word roles in sociology is ordinarily understood to mean routine behavior or acts that can change over time and that differ from culture to culture. But Knight defines roles as something permanent and as what identifies the sexes. He also defined roles in terms of authority, namely that it is the role of men to lead and of women to obey. In other words, Knight used the word role to speak of fixed power relations given at birth based on gender. In other words, Knight still perpetuated a caste system based on gender, where men were on top, women were subordinate to them, and everyone else didn't rate a mention. Churches latched onto this new imagination of the same old fatalism. Wayne Grudem and his council on biblical manhood and womanhood moved away from words like patriarchy 
and traditional to describe their position, taking on instead the label complementarianism or complementarian, a focus on the defining differences between men and women while maintaining that we all have equal worth. Meanwhile, proponents for full and equal participation in God's kingdom were now known as egalitarians, a descriptor that Grudem had twisted to mean gender neutrality. Even as early as the 1970s, writes Grudem, and I have this book, we were waving the flag of biblical complementarianism, not yet called that, over the emerging gender-leveling impulses of what was then called evangelical feminism or egalitarianism. On the one hand, our culture in general has moved with stunning speed away from any Christian consensus on what is right and wrong in the matter of sexual ethics. On the other hand, there is a resurgence of churches and younger Christians who take their Bibles seriously enough that they are willing to walk dramatically out of step with the culture. They see in the Bible a vision of manhood and womanhood that does not blur the sexes, but puts their differences in dazzling colour. Such fear-mongering about blurring the sexes is especially rich coming from the hermeneutic that turned Junior into a man. Which brings me to Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, growing up in a fundy church, I was taught to understand this verse as eschatological, a bit like how the book of Daniel suddenly took a jazz moment and then wandered off into ap apocalyptic vision straight after skipping breakfast with the lions. Basically, I was taught that when we all get to heaven, when we quit this mortal coil and shed our physical bodies, when we are finally free, our souls become genderless. It was also implied that by being genderless in heaven, I would no longer be subordinate to men. I be released from God's created order for the world and quit my functional subordination and never get to Western letters again. The idea of gender-free heaven, by the way, isn't new, but it isn't Christian either. As it turns out, it's actually Gnostic. So, you know, oops. Putting aside the priceless question about what the kingdom of God actually is, this verse has also been used by some feminist theologians as a call to remove gender distinctiveness altogether. But I don't believe that's what Paul is getting at in Galatians. Paul starts out brusquely. After giving an almost perfunctory, I'm Paul, grace and peace to you, etc., etc., he goes straight for the jugular. He goes, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. It's the conservative Jews in Galatia, and they're insisting again that Gentiles become ethnically Jewish in order to become part of God's people. Paul recounts his personal spiritual journey, underlining how the apostles extended to him the right hand of fellowship and then divvied up the preaching, Barnabas and Paul to the Gentiles, the rest of the apostles to the circumcised. Paul then launches into an explanation of how the spirit is received through faith rather than through the works of the law. Now, if you're getting deja vu, it's because Paul has done this before. His letter to the Romans, delivered by Phoebe, a woman deacon, covers faith, law, and how we are all bound to Christ now. In Romans, he encourages both Jews and Gentiles to accept each other just as they are, without looking down on one another. 
And it's not just a Jew-Gentile thing either. Like what Jeff has preached before, the fact that slaves were eating with masters is huge. It controverts the highly hierarchical social order of the day. It is decidedly, scandalously antisocial. That one will be hard for both Jews and Gentiles to take. And as for women, the halakha, a compilation of Jewish oral traditions and laws, includes the following blessing to be read out by just the men. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, ruler of the universe, who has not made me a woman. And so this is Paul's world, the world of these Jews, these Gentiles, these slaves and women. But in chapter 3, verse 28, Paul underscores the equality of all believers by explaining that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In fact, the actual translation of the last pairing changes slightly. Instead of continuing with neither male nor female, the text actually changes to no male and female. Some scholars, such as N.T. Wright, posit that Paul is actually quoting Genesis 1.27 again here, that male and female harks back to the divine image of God. God created humanity in God's own image. In the divine image, God created them. Male and female, God created them. And here we all, and we are all indeed made in God's image. So stop with this us and them in and out mentality, Paul is saying. Paul talked about this at length, ad nauseum, throughout his journeys and in his letters. It's like the chorus to the salvation song he constantly sang. Here there is no Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all, in Colossians. And then 1 Corinthians, for we are all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. It can be a hard thing for humans to accept that something so priceless as God's love is so readily available and so indiscriminately distributed. As a species, we're terrible at sharing and we love to feel privileged. After all, it's hard to feel special when you're special, just like everyone else. And I wonder if that was what was going on in Romans and Galatians and the church in Corinth. For in essence, the Jews, especially the male Jews, were asked to give up something precious to them. Their identity as a set-apart people beloved by God. Circumcision wasn't just an identifier of a chosen nation. It was a profoundly intimate act. And it not only distinguished Jew from Gentile, it automatically privileged males. But compare circumcision to the act of baptism and the sheer inclusiveness of the latter. Anyone could get baptized. Women could get baptized. You see, Wayne Grudem and the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood and anyone else who preaches a hierarchy of genders are wrong. Egalitarianism isn't about turning us all into hermaphrodites. Egalitarianism celebrates unity in Christ. It says, come to the table. There's plenty of room. We are kin. It says, I am different from you. What's it like being you? Bring your gifts and let me learn. It says, we are all connected together, held by what every joint supplies. 
It says, God's Spirit will be poured out on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. In contrast, the opposite of egalitarianism isn't complementarianism, it's elitism. It is the belief that certain people have the right to be heard more than others. I have touched by the, but the tippy top of this iceberg. This iceberg is big and monstrous and deep and goes back centuries. There are pet verses and proof texts I haven't even begun to chip away at, and that's a topic for another day. And I knew, of course, before speaking today, that you don't need much convincing. The fact that I'm here, a Chinese migrant woman, speaking to you today, says everything about your beliefs on the matter. What easier subject is there for my maiden message than the one about women being allowed to fully participate in church life? <laughs> but if there is a cautionary tale at all today, it's this. Just like the Jewish man's thanksgiving for not being a slave or a woman, just like the Pharisee who thanks God that he's not like that tax collector over there, it's way, way too easy to point at others and thank God we don't think like them. If this quick run through history has shown us anything at all today, it's how very difficult it is to transcend our own world in order to touch God's face. The encouragement to not be not of the world but be transformed by the renewing of the mind is serious out-of-the-box stuff. It's humbling to remember that people who've spent their lives pondering the mysteries of God, whose minds and thoughts can go a million miles faster and higher and deeper than most, whose faith in God is unshakable and profound, could still fall into the trap of shoehorning and even augmenting scripture in order to have it fit their finite understanding and limited worldview. None of us is immune to this. None of us. But I also want to leave you with this. The assurance that your belief in gender equality isn't founded on some modern cultural fad or an inside yummy feeling. The world, and sadly much of Christendom, can and will gaslight you on this, but know that your beliefs have roots that are ancient and primitive and deliberate and go back to the very beginning, to the very image of God. For Christ is all and is in all. Thanks for listening.